Judd Apatow is perhaps best known for his work in the film world, writing movies and television like The Ben Stiller Show, The Larry Sanders Show, Freaks and Geeks, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Pineapple Express, Funny People, and This Is Us, among others. But he's also known for mentoring rising stars like Lena Dunham for Girls, Pete Holmes for Crashing, Amy Schumer for Trainwreck, and Pete Davidson for The King of Staten Island. Somehow between all these projects, he's also done documentaries about George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Daryl Strawberry, and the Abbott Brothers, and he's published two books, Sick in the Head and its sequel, Sicker in the Head, in addition to a book on Gary Shandling. In this interview, Apatow talks about writing comedy movies today, how to make voice-driven films, lessons from making documentaries, audience validation, and his new book, Sicker in the Head, along with his new special about George Carlin. Well, that's all I ever really wanted to do. When I was a kid, I wanted to do stand-up. I probably had some dream of being Eddie Murphy, I guess, like we all did, or Bill Murray when I was 12 or 13 years old. But I love the idea of doing stand-up, and I did it for seven years, starting when I was in high school, and then took off a couple of decades, and I've been doing it for about eight years since, and it's a little bit like a tuning fork. You know, it's really fun, but I feel like it services all my other writing and all my other creative projects, because you really feel like you understand the audience and what they're interested in, and on some unconscious level, you're taking in information about how to be funny and what people want from you. And it's also like a little signal to my self-esteem because I still want to not do anything. Like my critical voice is like, shut up, don't write, just lay in bed. And every time I get on stage, it's like telling that voice to shut up. (laughs) Where do you kind of see, so a lot of stand-up specials are being made today. It seems like comedy today versus even like 10 years ago it almost feels like a comedy script has to be an action comedy or some kind of hybrid model where do you kind of see straight comedy movies today it's a weird moment because before the pandemic you know things were beginning to move towards action and spectacle a lot of that has to do with the fact that a comedy film doesn't usually travel well it's not like your comedy is going to be gigantic in china right and a lot of the studios want movies that have the potential to be franchises or make a billion dollars and comedies are are like a hedged bet like oh we have to spend 200 million on the budget of this movie so we'll make a couple over here that cost 20 or 30 and maybe one of them will do really well but i can't make only movies that cost 200 million dollars And that's an understandable business approach, but it does train the audience that there aren't going to be that many comedies when there used to be a lot more. And then when the pandemic happened, people thought, oh, I should just get everything at home. And maybe it broke the comedy in the theater habit a little bit. And so now that we pray the monkeypox doesn't get us all and the COVID dissipates in the way we're hoping it is, that people will have experiences in a theater where they have communal times with people laughing their asses off and they realize, oh, that's something I want in my movie diet. You know, we have our film with Billy Eichner, Bros, a a gay romantic comedy, which comes out in September and it's riotously funny and a really well-made emotional movie. And I think it's it's a real test if people are gonna leave their, their homes to see comedy in the theaters. 
Because of the type of projects you want to get made, are you st- do you still kind of struggle or do you have enough under your belt that they trust you more now? Because it feels like you're still trying to make more like independent comedies and, and unique stories that are not Marvel or whatever, you know? Well, I, I like breaking new people. I like new ideas, new territories. So I, I just don't want to be generic or hacky. So when someone has an idea that I haven't heard before, or it's from a community that is underserved, I like to try to make films in those areas. I have been able most of the time to get things made, but there's plenty that they refuse to make. We just never talk about it. Right. But like, you know, like, like bros, there hasn't been, you know, big mainstream romantic comedies about the gay community. There's some on streaming and, there might be something in the past, but this is what we wanted to do, which is like a big swing. Like this should be a big when Harry met Sally type of movie. And we're not getting those. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the audience really hungers for it. When we tested it, the crowds went crazy. And they basically said, why did you take so long to do this? Mm-hmm. And that that's really gratifying. And it's also fun to be making a movie that's uh, unique and, and original. So that that's what interests me the, the most is just new types of stories. Why do you think more producers, it seems like you really lean to voice whether you're kind of in a mentorship position with Amy, Schul- uh, Amy Schumer, Seth Rogen, Pete Davidson. Uh, you, you kind of said you like the energy of someone's first big movie. Like it feels like most producers are still thinking about plot and, theme maybe that's it like like why are people not just kind of leaning more into like let's really make this person shine because is it just that you can see something they don't see or what is it i'm very interested in the story but as a fan of comedy so much of it is the personality right so you know you would see somebody like john belushi in animal house or you'd see bill murray in caddyshack or and, and so I think my mind goes to people first, but they do have to have the, the great story. So if I say to Kristen Wiig early in her Saturday Night Live reign, do you have any ideas? And she said, you know, me and Annie Mumlow want to do a, a movie about, you know, a maid of honor uh, who doesn't have any money and can't afford to do it. And it's about her life not working out the way she wants. Well, then you're off to the races because they have something they passionately want to talk about. Right. But it usually starts with, I love Kristen Wiig. I wish there was a movie that was all about her. Hmm. And, you know, the same has happened with other people like Amy Schumer or Kamel Nanjiani, where I I want as a fan to see them, but they have to have a great idea or, you know, it ends there. Do you famous, like in your first book, Sick in the Head, and you famously were able to approach these people very early and get a lot of information. You kind of had a mentorship relationship with Gary Shandling. After those first movies, how do you kind of see your role in some of these people's lives? Do they come back to you? Do you have, is it more of an ongoing friendship? How do you think about like helping people navigate this really difficult world? I think it's different with everybody. I mean, I've worked on about 30 movies, I think. And there are certain people that you talk to all the time and you're very close to. There are other people you go years and years without talking to. There there are people that do seek 
guidance. There are people that I seek guidance from who are many years younger than me. I mean, it's just every possible version of of the relationships. I mean, hopefully, we're, you know, friendships are formed and we're there for each other. Uh, you know, that's what's most important to me. Sometimes people want to keep that creative collaboration going. A lot of people have, you know, their own visions and dreams for what they want to do that, that don't involve me. And then they do some other piece of amazing work. Um, and, and that's great too. It, it, it's all different. I'm, I just want to always have something I'm working on that I'm personally really passionate about. I just never want to do something just to do something. Every time out, I want it to feel like it's the first one or the last one. How did you kind of start to move into some of your nonfiction work? You did a piece on the Avid Brothers. You got a special on George Carlin coming out. You did that book about Gary Shandling and a special. Um, is it a is it a different muscle you're you're kind of using to? Because it seems like you, it's this is research based as opposed to storytelling, creating, and it's a different type of puzzle solving. Well, it started I think when we did Funny People. We hired a friend of mine, Chris Wilcher, to do a documentary about the making of Funny People which I think is equally as good as the movie. It's a, it's a great time capsule about all the people in it and me and Adam's friendships and our lives and careers and how we made the movie. And I think I was looking for a way to get closer to the documentary world. I was doing an episode of Iconoclasts with Lena Dunham and Michael Bonfiglio was the director. And on set, I could tell he was a really special artist. And then I saw the cut and I was really moved by how he put it together. And I was talking to Rick Rubin and Rick is someone I met through Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling said, you should do something with Rick Rubin. And I would always listen to Gary because he was so intuitive. And one day Rick Rubin said, you should do something with the Avet brothers because life is better when you're around them. <laughs> and he said they were about to start work on a new album and maybe we could shoot some stuff. And there really wasn't an intention for what we would do. We didn't know if it would be five minutes or a movie or a music video, but Michael started following them around as they shared their songs with each other, Scott and Seth Avid. And we did that for about a year. I just paid for it. And I loved them and I loved what we were shooting. At some point I thought, I don't think there's a story here because they're just nice and nothing really is happening. But slowly we realized that that's what it was about. It was about this, Brotherhood with them and everybody in the band with, with Joe Kwan uh, and Bob Crawford and and their lives together and that there was almost a beautiful you know musical poem about this love they all have for each other and this musical journey they're on and while we were working on that someone asked us to do a thirty for thirty and I asked Michael to work on that with me about Dwight Good and, and Daryl Strawberry who both had very bad drug problems and. I thought oh, it would be interesting to talk to both of them about it and to get them together to talk about what it was like to be young and under that pressure and to have those obstacles. And I, I just acquired a great partner in, in Michael. He's, you know, one of the great documentarians and uh, I'm glad that it's worked out so well. I really, I really enjoy making them. Are you always, are you ever like overwhelmed, but once you, it seems like you found the story, like, oh, the Avet brothers, the story's this, or 30 for 30, the story's this, because it seems like coming on something like this, especially like I want to make something about Shandling or Carlin, 
you feel almost like obligated to like tell their whole story, but is it more like I got to find my version of this story and that's what I want to present? Like, how do you think about some of those things? I usually think about, you know, what, what makes people tick? What happened to them? What defined them? You know, Dwight Gooden, Dallas Strawberry came from, you know, different backgrounds that led to them being great athletes. The Dow Strawberry had, uh, you know, a more conflicted relationship with his father. Uh, there was a lot of abuse in the family. And, and Dwight Gooden was very, very close with his father, but almost too close. Just mm-hmm. they were all just like baseball obsessed. And when his father died, he suddenly lost all interest in baseball because it was all about sharing this with his dad. In fact, his dad was sick and they said, you should visit him because he may not make it. And he was pitching that night and he said, I'll visit him after I pitch. He would want me to pitch. And he threw a no hitter <laughs> and he got there just right after his father passed. And, but he knew it mattered to his dad and that, that, that that's what their life was about. And that's what interests me more than the careers is the relationships and what happens to someone that makes him want to be funny? What happened to George Carlin that makes him such a critical thinker, such a, such a rebel? Uh, and, and in documentaries, you can go really deep and you have more time. And, and that's always been in, interesting to me. And I think that's what I'm doing in movies. You know, what happened to these people? What happened to Pete Davidson that led to his personality? And how can he heal? How can he grow? Mm. that's what king of staten island is about that's what train wreck is about mm. why aren't amy's relationships working what would have to happen to her for her to learn the lesson she needs to learn to be happy in relationships so there's something very similar about my interest in fiction and non-fiction is there anything you didn't know about carlin that you learned from doing the documentary i mean i knew so little about him and that's what i was nervous about because i knew shanling very well mm. there still was a lot more to learn George Carlin, I knew almost nothing about his personal life. He didn't talk about it in his act. Kelly Carlin, his daughter, had done a one-woman show and wrote a book about it. But a lot of his problems in his marriage and with addiction were not common knowledge. And I wondered if we would have the material to express it clearly and vividly. We were trying to figure out how to do that because he didn't have a lot of friends. There weren't people who said, oh, I was there for that. There was almost nobody other than his manager and his brother and Kelly. So one day we we found out that when he did his autobiography, that he had done 23 hours of very casual conversations with Tony Hendra, his co-author. And we thought if we could find those, maybe they would be great. And it was really hard to get them. And finally, we hunted them down. And that became the narration for the movie. But there's always these other little pieces that you have to find to make things come to life. Like there was a, an interview on local television with his wife, just one, but really in depth about how hard it was to be married to a comedian and how she became an alcoholic because he was never home and she couldn't pursue her own dreams. And without that interview, I don't think the documentary would be anywhere near as, as good. And so we were able to illuminate both his comic arc And also this arc of somebody who became a cocaine addict while his wife was an alcoholic. And, you know, they're dealing with very, very uh, dysfunctional family and 
and all the problems it caused their daughter. And, uh, and that to me was the heart of the whole documentary, that relationship, none of which I knew about before. Mm -hmm. Do you always know how you're going to present something like that? Cause you, you just recently came out with sicker in the head and it makes sense that the first one's a book, but with this one, with interviews are newer, it could be a book. It could be a podcast. It could be audio video, whatever. Like, did you always know? I mean, it makes sense to do a sequel, but how did you kind of define like, Oh, this is the best way to tell this story. Yeah. I never thought about putting the audio out there also because I edited it. Cause we talked for a long time. Right. <laughs> I can't just put the raw at audio out there a lot of times when i interview people i talk a lot about myself to elicit them talking about themselves but all those stories are already in the first book and it gets repetitive mm -hmm. i like the fact that you have to pay attention to it that people don't really read books in the same way as they used to i don't know if people are as focused everyone has attention issues and they you know they, they like to listen to podcasts or or, or, or watch TV and documentaries, but there's something about reading a book and, you know, to read a long interview with Cameron Crowe, where he really explains that journey of being like a little kid and figuring out a way to interview Led Zeppelin. <laughs> there's something so intimate about it in book form. You really disappear into it. And I wanted to do another book because it was the middle of the pandemic and I knew everybody was home and everybody was really raw and reconsidering all their life choices. And I knew they were available because we were in lockdown. So I was able to talk to some people that I've always wanted to talk to, like Whoopi Goldberg, who I worked for Comic Relief in 1986. It was my first job as a PA in the office. And, you know, to get two hours to learn about her incredible journey, I got to talk to David Letterman, you know, who's one of the main reasons I got into comedy. So it's fun for me because I get to learn something, which hopefully helps my career, but also, uh, I can ask them, you know, how are you doing? Just separate from your career. Like, are you okay? How are you feeling? Are you sane? Are you growing? Do you feel like you have a lot of gas in the tank creatively? How, how are you staying fresh? And those conversations seem to help me on my journey, both professionally and as a person. I hadn't, I read the interview with Cameron Crow. I hadn't thought of before about how much you guys overlap with like tent poles yeah. of your life and that type of thing. How much preparation do you do? Or is it more about having a conversation and just seeing where, where it takes you in those interviews? I usually read a couple of Q and A's they've done. I usually just say to my office, you know, give me two or three long Q and A's. There were some people I listened to the to podcast. David Letterman did an incredible interview with Mark Marin on WTF. Mm -hmm where he was very open about how hard the show was to make and, and how it consumed him. And there were times where it just kind of went by him because he was so focused on making it good that there were things maybe he should have enjoyed. And I totally relate to that. When I'm on a set, I'm pretending to have fun so everyone else can be loose and do their jobs. But inside... I'm so nervous that I'm screwing everything up. I'm trying so hard to focus on what we're, what we're doing. Are there any examples, maybe if you were to go back before um, 40 year old virgin or, or some of your early projects, are there any like false beliefs you had where you're like, I'm sure I know this about screenwriting. I know this about directing that now you're like, well, that's totally not true. Um, you know, when I was in film school, they were always talking about structure. And 
I remember fighting with my professor and I really didn't want to have any rules. And I hated that they were trying to box me in to this three act structure. And this has to happen here. And this turn has to happen here. And then I took a class with Sid Field and he was my teacher. And, and I was frustrated because he mainly just read his book to us, but he did make us do some writing. And then when I started getting my first screenwriting assignments and doing my first spec script, I realized that they were all correct. Sinfield used to always say, I know you think you don't need to do the structure, but whatever movie you do, you're doing this structure. You have to have this beginning, middle, and end. You have to have this inciting event. You have to have the beginning of the conclusion. And I still use all of that today. You know, I'll, I'll do the Sinfield paradigm. I'll get on the dry erase board and, and, I have pictures of like the bridesmaids dry erase board with all the scenes written that Kristen and Annie and Paul were kicking around. So I don't know if that, I don't think it's that what I learned was wrong. I think I was wrong in resisting what they were trying to tell me. Is there something that helps to validate that as your career goes on? It seems like in stand up, obviously the audience will validate it. Do you find the same thing? Like, the Sid Field method to hero's journey. Once you hear an audience laugh in a movie, do you kind of see that validation? You do feel it. Like there's that great book. What I have, I literally have it in the, in the other room that breaks down the hero's journey into all these different stories. The guy wrote it. His name is Christopher Bogler. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, a great book. What's the name of that book? Do you remember? Writer's Journey, I think. Yeah. I talked to him not long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it may be one of the best books that you ever could buy about storytelling. Yeah. And I've gone through it a zillion times. And I'm, I'm like, I wonder which of these stories I'm doing, because he lists all the different variations of it. And in, in different moments in my life, it's been really helpful. Even on weird things like you don't mess with the Zohan, <laughs> which is a, a strange, reluctant hero's journey. It's right. like, uh, it's like Shane or something. And I, I think that, there have been like four or five books which have really helped me hmm. over the years that I go back to over and over again. I mean, I just bought Christopher's book again because I'm working on something and I thought I bet the answer's in that book. <laughs> How do you think about um, maybe a, a scope of like your full career, like taking risks? Like you've, you've worked with Will Ferrell a lot. This is not a movie you did together, but he made Casa de Mi Padre where it's all in Spanish. Yeah. It's a big swing, right? Yeah. How do you kind of think about doing some of those things in your career? Like, is it like, oh, it's time to take a big risk now? How do you think about that? I, I think that they're all risks because comedy is such an experiment. You just never know if anything's going to work. Mm. Like when someone watch a movie about a 40 year old virgin, is that the <laughs> worst idea you've ever heard in your life? And Steve and I said, well, maybe if we just make it totally credible, mm. and it's not some like angry, weird guy, it's just a normal, sweet guy. And it got, past them but you don't know if it's going to work you don't know how to make it satisfying and slowly you think oh, well maybe it's really about relationships and maybe it's about this guy is worried about sex but really he has to figure out how to have a relationship with Catherine Keener that's way more complicated than just sex and you know Gary Shanley would help us and he always says well it's about love it's about that all his friends are trying to have sex but he finds love right. and, and each time out you don't know if it's going to work. You don't know if Knocked Up's going to work. There's been a zillion movies about getting somebody pregnant and what happens. There's no safety in 
the fact that the last one worked, each one is completely terrifying. There have been times where I thought, oh, this is the this is different. I'm doing something different here. With the King of Staten Island, I thought I like to be even more credible and even more grounded. I like to take my foot off the comedy gas a little bit more and be more character driven than I've been. But then on the bubble, I thought I want to go, you know, kind of a weird combo of like Mel Brooks and <laughs> Tropic Thunder. Just do something that's bonkers, right? Satirical and like a you know like a the kind of movie i wish was on tv when i'm sitting in bed like this is for netflix what do i wish was on there and i knew that that was like a weird swing to just go oh this is this horrifying time in human history can you be funny about it can you talk to people about isolation and all the the weird feelings we have when we're forced to sit in this purgatory and consider our lives and maybe if you do it through weird actors and actresses trying to make a dinosaur action movie. <laughs> you can satirize this crazy period. So there are moments where you know, like, wow, we haven't done this one, but hopefully you're doing that almost every time out. Okay. Has your writing style had to change for any reason based on what's expected of comedy? Like if you look at like um, Knocked Up, it's a lot of like insult comedy, but it's also your like a probably a young single guy when that was written whereas like this is 40s like more of a family story this is natural progression but do you see like that things are changing because audiences are expecting something different now i don't know i think when you're young you write about what that period was like so when i'm young i write about high school when i'm working with paul feig on freaks and geeks and then with undeclared we talked about college and knocked ups about young love and it's also about marriage and you know, funny people becomes about like your career and how you feel about it. And are you handling your, your life work balance correctly? Are you losing your mind? And each, each phase is reflected in a movie. This is 40s, a, a later phase. And, and, and so that's how I, I try to look at it. I mean, I don't know if I would go back and do a young people trying to find someone to have sex with a movie at this point but maybe maybe it'd be fun to find someone that you know wants to talk about young love and hormones again you know for the most part i i feel like i'm progressing forward in stories about about life but you know it was so fun to do those stories and i think we were just as passionate about the madness of youth as we are about the things we're doing now and so those two movies kind of have a connection. I'll say this is 40 is my wife's absolute favorite movie. She watched it whenever, whenever it's on. Do you see uh, kind of a before sunset trilogy type thing ever happening with some of your stories like that? Well, I'd like to do this is 50. I've been outlining it and it seems like people do want it. I think this is 40 has kind of grown its audience over the years. I think people watched it when they turned 40 <laughs> and they understand what I'm talking about. Uh, and so I have an idea for it, and hopefully in the next year or two, I'll get a chance to make it, if Maud and Iris are available and willing. Right. They've grown past me, so we have to see. <laughs> I think we're almost out of time. We'll maybe do one more. I like to kind of ask, you get a lot of great advice already, but is there anything that makes you notice a screenplay today or any advice you'd like to pass on to screenwriters trying to kind of get noticed today? Well, I think that, you usually can tell if somebody has a voice, if someone's writing with some specificity, if you, 
you know, you feel the soul of somebody in the writing. It's clear when things are somewhat generic and when someone's really coming across to you, separate from the issues of story and, and those choices. I remember a long time ago, some producers like, oh, I can tell, I can open up to any page in a script and tell if it's worth reading the, the whole script. I can just pick one page, page 41, and I can just get a feel if someone knows what they're doing. Mm. And it sounds horrible, but it's kind of true. Wow. And I just always tell people, you know, write about something you really care about. You can, you can tell when people are writing to make some money, but writing is always better when it's so important to you and you're offering something and you're giving of yourself. And you could do that in a silly movie. You could do that in a horror movie, but you really have to go all the way. And I also, also always tell people don't quit because almost everybody quits. And that's the strange thing about the business is it is really hard, but the people who make it tend to work the hardest and are unwilling to quit. 